Section 11 of The Great Events, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Blake Butler. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 1. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rosader Johnson, and John Rudd. Fall of Troy, B.C. 1184, by George Grote, Part 2. Odysseus now learned from Helenus, son of Priam, whom he had captured in an ambuscade, that Troy could not be taken unless both Philoctetes and Neoptolemus, son of Achilles, could be prevailed upon to join the besiegers. The former, having been stung in the foot by a serpent and becoming insupportable to the greeks from the stench of his wound had been left at lemnos in the commencement of the expedition and had spent ten years in misery on that desolate island but he still possessed the peerless bow and arrows of heracles which were said to be essential to the capture of troy diomedes fetched philoctetes from lemnos to the grecian camp where he was healed by the skill of a machaon and took an active part against the trojans engaging in single combat with paris and killing him with one of the heraclean arrows the trojans were allowed to carry away for burial the body of this prince the fatal cause of all their sufferings but not until it had been mangled by the hand of menelaus odysseus went to the island of skyros to invite neoptolemus to the army the untried but impetuous youth gladly obeying the call received from odysseus his father's armor while on the other hand eurypleus son of telephus came from myasia as auxiliary to the trojans and rendered to them the valuable service turning the tide of fortune for a time against the greeks and killing some of their bravest chiefs, among whom were numbered Peneleos and the unrivaled leech Machaon. The exploits of Neoptolemus were numerous, worthy of the glory of his race and the renown of his father. He encountered and slew Eurypleus, together with numbers of the Myasian warriors. He routed the Trojans and drove them within their walls, from whence they never again emerged to give battle. And he was not less distinguished for good sense and persuasive diction than for forward energy in the field. Troy, however, was still impregnable so long as the Palladium, a statue given by Zeus himself to Dardanus, remained in the citadel and great care had been taken by the trojans not only to conceal this valuable present but to construct other statues so like it as to mislead any intruding robber nevertheless the enterprising odysseus having disguised his person with miserable clothing and self-inflicted injuries found means to penetrate into the city and to convey the palladium by stealth way helen alone recognized him but she was now anxious to return to greece and even assisted odysseus in concerting means for the capture of the town to accomplish this object one final stratagem was resorted to by the hands of epius and panopius and at the suggestion of athene a capacious hollow wooden horse was constructed capable of containing one hundred men in the inside of this horse the elite of the grecian heroes neoptolemus odysseus menelaus and others concealed themselves while the entire grecian army sailed away to tenidos burning their tents and pretending to have abandoned the siege the trojans overjoyed to find themselves free issued from the city and contemplated with astonishment the fabric which their enemies had left behind 
They long doubted what should be done with it, and the anxious heroes from within heard the surrounding consultations, as well as the voice of Helen when she pronounced the names and counterfeited the accents of their wives. Many of the Trojans were anxious to dedicate it to the gods in the city as a token of gratitude for their deliverance, but the more cautious spirits inculcated distrust of an enemy's legacy. Laocoon, the priest of Poisodon, manifested his aversion by striking the side of the horse with his spear. The sound revealed that the horse was hollow, but the Trojans heeded not this warning of possible fraud. The unfortunate Laocoon, a victim to his own sagacity and patriotism, miserably perished before the eyes of his countrymen, together with one of his sons, two serpents being sent expressly by the gods out of the sea to destroy him. By this terrific spectacle, together with the perfidious counsels of Simon, a traitor whom the Greeks had left behind for the special purpose of giving false information, the Trojans were induced to make a breach in their own walls and to drag the fatal fabric with triumph and exultation into their city. The destruction of Troy, according to the decree of the gods, was now irrevocably sealed. While the Trojans indulged in a night of riotous festivity, Simon kindled the fire signal to the Greeks at Tenidos, loosening the bolts of the wooden horse, from out of which the enclosed heroes descended. The city, assailed both from within and from without, was thoroughly sacked and destroyed, with the slaughter or captivity of the larger portion of its heroes as well as its people. The venerable Priam perished by the hand of Neoptolemus, having in vain sought shelter at the domestic altar of Zeus Hercius. But his son Diophobus, who since the death of Prius had become the husband of Helen, defended his house desperately against Odysseus and Menelaus, and sold his life dearly. After he was slain, his body was fearfully mutilated by the latter. Thus was Troy utterly destroyed, the city, the altars and temples, and the population. Aeneas and Antenor were permitted to escape, with their families, having been always more favorably regarded by the Greeks than the remaining Trojans. According to one version of the story, they had betrayed the city to the Greeks. A panther's skin had been hung over the door of Antenor's house as a signal for the victorious besiegers to spare it in general plunder. In the distribution of the principal captives, Astyanax, the infant son of Hector, was cast from the top of the wall and killed by Odysseus or Neoptolemus. Polyxena, the daughter of Priam, was immolated on the tomb of Achilles, in compliance with the requisition made by the shade of the deceased hero to his countrymen, while her sister Cassandra was presented as a prize to Agamemnon. She had sought sanctuary at the altar of Athene, where Ajax, the son of Oilus, making a guilty attempt to seize her, had drawn both upon himself and upon the army the serious wrath of the goddess, insomuch that the Greeks could hardly be restrained from stoning him to death. Andromache and Helenus were both given to Neoptolemus, who, according to the Ilius Minor, carried away also Aeneas as his captive. Helen gladly resumed her union with Menelus. She accompanied him back to Sparta, and lived with him there many years in comfort and dignity, passing afterward to a happy immortality in the Elysian fields. She was worshipped as a goddess, with her brothers, the Dioscori, and her husband, having her temple, statue, and altar at Therapne and elsewhere. Various examples of her miraculous intervention were cited among the Greeks. 
the lyric poet Stysichorus had ventured to denounce her, conjointly with her sister Clytemnestra, in a tone of rude and plain-spoken severity, resembling that of Euripides and Lycophron afterward, but strikingly opposite to the delicacy and respect with which she is always handled by Homer, who never admits reproaches against her except from her own lips. He was smitten with blindness and made sensible of his impiety, but... Having repented and composed a special poem formally retracting the calumny, was permitted to recover his sight. In his poem of recantation, the famous Polinity now unfortunately lost, he pointedly contradicted the Homeric narrative, affirming that Helen had never been at Troy at all, and that the Trojans had carried thither nothing but her image or Eidolon. It is, probably, to the excited religious feelings of Stysichorus that we owe the first idea of this glaring deviation from the old legend, which could never have been recommended by any considerations of poetical interest. Other versions were afterwards started, forming a sort of compromise between Homer and Stysichorus, admitting that Helen had never really been at Troy, without altogether denying her elopement. Such is the story of her having been detained in Egypt during the whole term of the siege. Paris, on his departure from Sparta, had been driven thither by storms, and the Egyptian king Proteus, hearing of the grievous wrong which he had committed toward Menelaus, had sent him away from the country with severe menaces, detaining Helen until her lawful husband should come to seek her. When the Greeks reclaimed Helen from Troy, the Trojans assured them solemnly that she never was nor ever had been in the town. But the Greeks, treating this allegation as fraudulent, prosecuted the siege until their ultimate success confirmed the correctness of the statement. Menelaus did not recover Helen until, on his return from Troy, he visited Egypt. Such was the story told by the Egyptian priests to Herodotus, and it appeared satisfactory to his historicizing mind. For if Helen had really been at Troy, he argues, she would certainly have been giving up, even had she been mistress of Priam himself instead of Paris. The Trojan king, with all his family and all his subjects, would never knowingly have incurred utter and irretrievable destruction for the purpose of retaining her. Their misfortune was that, while they did not possess and therefore could not restore her, they yet found it impossible to convince the Greeks that such was a fact. Assuming the historical character of the War of Troy, the remark of Herodotus admits of no reply, nor can we greatly wonder why he acquiesced in the tale of Helen's Egyptian detention, as a substitute for the incredible sanity which the genuine legend imputes to Priam and the Trojans. Pausanias, upon the same ground and by the same mode of reasoning, pronounced that the Trojan horse must have been, in point of fact, a battering engine, because to admit the literal narrative would be to impute utter childishness to the defenders of the city. And Mr. Payne Knight rejects Helen altogether as the real cause of the Trojan War, though she may have been the pretext of it, for he thinks that neither the Greeks nor the Trojans could have been so mad and silly as to endure calamities of such magnitude for one little woman. Mr. Knight suggests various political causes as substitutes. These might deserve consideration, either if any evidence could be produced to countenance them, or if the subject on which they are brought to bear could be shown to belong to the domain of history. 
The return of the Grecian chiefs from Troy furnished matter to the ancient epic hardly less copious than the siege itself, and the more susceptible of indefinite diversity, insomuch as those who had before acted in concert were now dispersed and isolated. Moreover, the stormy voyages and compulsory wanderings of the heroes exactly fell in with the common aspirations after an heroic founder and enabled even the most remote hellenic settlers to connect the origin of their town with this prominent event of their anti-historical and semi-divine world and an absence of ten years afforded room for the supposition of many domestic changes in their narrative abode and many family misfortunes and misdeeds during the interval one of these historic returns that of odysseus has been immortalized by the verse of homer the hero after a series of long protracted suffering and expatriation inflicted on him by the anger of poseidon at last reaches his native land but finds his wife beset his youthful son insulted and his substance plundered by a troop of insolent suitors he is forced to appear as a wretched beggar and to endure in his own person their scornful treatment but finally by the interference of athene coming in aid of his own courage and stratagem he is enabled to overwhelm his enemies to resume his family position and to recover his property the return of several other grecian chiefs was the subject of an epic hagias which is now lost but of which a brief abstract or argument still remains there were in antiquity various other poems of similar title and analogous matter as usual with the ancient epic the multiplied sufferings of this back voyage are traced to divine wrath justly provoked by the sins of the greeks who in the fierce exultation of a victory purchased by so many hardships had neither respected nor even spared the altars of the gods in troy athene who had been their most zealous ally during the siege was so incensed by their final recklessness more especially by the outrage of ajax son of oilus that she actively harassed and embittered their return in spite of every effort to appease her the chiefs began to quarrel among themselves their formal assembly became a scene of drunkenness even agamemnon and menelaus lost their fraternal harmony and each man acted on his own separate resolution nevertheless according to the odyssey nestor diomedes neoptolemus idomeneus and philoctetes reached home speedily and safely agamemnon also arrived in peloponnesus to perish by the hand of a treacherous wife but menelaus was condemned to long wanderings and to the severest privations in egypt cyprus and elsewhere before he could set foot in his native land the locrian ajax perished on the gyrian rock though exposed to a terrible storm he had already reached this place of safety when he indulged in the rash boast of having escaped in defiance of the gods no sooner did poseidon hear this language than he struck with his trident the rock which ajax was grasping and precipitated both into the sea calchas the soothsayer together with leontius and polypoetes proceeded by land from troy to colophon in respect however to those and the other grecian heroes tales were told different from those in the odyssey assigning to them a long expatriation and a distant home nestor went to italy where he founded metapontum pisa and heraclea philoctetes also went to italy founded patilia 
and Cremisa, and sent settlers to Agista in Sicily. Neoptolemus, under the advice of Thetis, marched by land across Thrace, met with Odysseus, who had come by sea, at Moronia, and then pursued his journey to Epirus, where he became king of the Molossians. Idomeneus came to Italy and founded Urea in the Salentine Peninsula. Diomedes, after wandering far and wide, went along the Italian coast into the innermost Adriatic Gulf, and finally settled in Duania, founding the cities of Argrippa, Beneventum, Atria, and Diomedia. By the favor of Athene he became immortal, and was worshipped as a god in many different places. The Locrian followers of Ajax founded the Epizephrian Locri on the southernmost corner of Italy besides another settlement in Libya. The previously exiled Teocros, besides founding the city of Salamis in Cyprus, is said to have established some settlements in the Iberian Peninsula. Menestheus, the Athenia, did the like, and also founded both Alea in Myasia and Scylidium in Italy. The Arcadian chief Agapenor founded Paphos in Cyprus. Epius of Panopius and Phocis, the constructor of the Trojan horse with the aid of the goddess Athene, settled at Ligaria, near Sybaris, on the coast of Italy, and the very tools which he had employed in that remarkable fabric were shown down to a late date in the temple of Athene at Metapontum. Temples, altars, and towns were also pointed out in Asia Minor in Samos, and in Crete, the foundation of Agamemnon or of his followers, the inhabitants of the Grecian town of Sione in the Thracian peninsula called Pelini, or Peleni, accounted themselves the offspring of the Pelenians from Achaea in Peloponnesus, who had served under Agamemnon before Troy, and who on their return from the siege had been driven on the spot by a storm and there settled. The Pamphylians on the southern coast of Asia Minor deduced their origins from the wanderings of Amphilochus and Calchas after the siege of Troy. The inhabitants of the Amphilochian Argos on the Gulf of Ambrosia revered the same Amphilochus as their founder. The Orchomenians under Aemonus on quitting the conquered city wandered or were driven to the eastern extremity of the Euxine Sea and the barbarous Achaeans under Mount Caucasus were supposed to have derived their first establishment from this source. Meriones, with his Cretan followers, settled at Angion in Sicily, along with the preceding Cretans who had remained there after the invasion of Minos. The Elmians in Sicily were also composed of Trojans and Greeks separately driven to the spot, who, forgetting their previous differences, united in the joint settlements of Eryx and Agesta. We hear of Podalirius both in Italy and on the coast of Caria, of Acamas, son of Theseus, at Amphipolis, in Thrace, at Soli in Cyprus, and at Senata in Phrygia, of Genius, Prothos, and Eurypylus, in Crete as well as in Libya. The obscure poem of Lycophron enumerates many of these dispersed and expatriated heroes whose conquest of Troy was indeed a Cadmean victory, according to the proverbial phrase of the Greeks wherein the sufferings of the victor were little inferior to those of the vanquished. It was particularly among the Italian Greeks, where they were worshipped with a very special solemnity, that their presence as wanderers from Troy was reported and believed. 
I pass over the numerous other tales which circulated among the ancients, illustrating the ubiquity of the Grecian and Trojan heroes as well as that of the Argonaut, one of the most striking features in the Hellenic legendary world. Among them all, the most interesting individually is Odysseus, whose romantic adventures in fabulous places and among fabulous persons have been made familiarly known by Homer. The goddess Calypso and Circe, the semi-divine mariners of Phaeacia, whose ships are endowed with consciousness and obey without a steersman, the one-eyed Cyclopes, the gigantic Lestragones, and the wind-ruler Aeolus, the sirens who ensnare by their song as the Lotophagi fascinate by their food. All these pictures formed integral and interesting portions of the old epic. Homer leaves Odysseus re-established in his house and family, but so marked a personage could never be permitted to remain in the tameness of domestic life. The epic poem called the Telegonia ascribed to him a subsequent series of adventures. Telegonus, his son by Circe, coming to Ithaca in search of his father, ravaged the island and killed Odysseus without knowing who he was. Bitter repentance overtook the son for his undesigned parricade. At his prayer and by the intervention of his mother Circe, both Penelope and Telemachus were made immortal. Telegonus married Penelope, and Telemachus married Circe. We see by this poem that Odysseus was represented as the mythical ancestor of the Thesprotian kings, just as Neoptolemus was of the Molossian. It has already been mentioned that Antenor and Aeonus stand distinguished from the other Trojans by a dissatisfaction with Priam and a sympathy with the Greeks, which was by Sophocles and others construed as treacherous collusion, a suspicion indirectly glanced at, though emphatically repelled, by the Aeneas of Virgil. In the old epic of Arctinus, next in age to the Iliad and Odyssey, Aeneas abandons Troy and retires to Mount Ida, in terror at the miraculous death of Laocoon, before the entry of the Greeks into the town and the last night of battle. Yet Leshes, in another of the ancient epic poems, represented him as having been carried away captive by Neoptolemus. In a remarkable passage of the Iliad, Poseidon describes the family of Priam as having incurred the hatred of Zeus, and predicts that Aeneas and his descendants shall reign over the Trojans. The race of Dardanus, beloved by Zeus more than all his other sons, would thus be preserved, since Aeneas belonged to it. Accordingly, when Aeneas is in imminent peril from the hands of Achilles, Poseidon specifically interferes to rescue him, and even the implacable Mesen Trojan goddess Hiri assents to the proceeding. These passages have been construed by various able critics to refer to a family of Philo-Hellenic or Semi-Hellenic Aeneidae, known even in the time of the early singers of the Iliad as masters of some territory in or near the Troad, and professing to be descended from, as well as worshipping, Aeneas. In the town of Skepsis, situated in the mountainous range of Ida, about thirty miles eastward of Ilium, there existed two noble and priestly families who professed to be descended, the one from Hector, the other from Aeneas. The Skepsian critic Demetrius, in whose time both these families were still to be found, informs us that Scamandrius, son of Hector, and Ascanius, son of Aeneas, were the archegets or heroic founders of his native city, which had been originally situated on one of the highest ranges of Ida and was subsequently transferred by them to the less lofty spot on which it stood in his time. 
in Arisbe and Gentinus, there seemed to have been families professing the same descent, since the same archegets were acknowledged. In Aferinium, Hector had his consecrated edifice, while in Ilium both he and Aeneas were worshipped as gods, and it was the remarkable statement of the lesbian Menacrates that Aeneas, having been wronged by Paris and stripped of the sacred privileges which belonged to him, avenged himself by betraying the city, and then became one of the Greeks. One tale thus among many respecting Aeneas, and that too, the most ancient of all, preserved among the natives of the Troad, who worshipped him as their heroic ancestor, was that after the capture of Troy he continued in the country as king of the remaining Trojans, on friendly terms with the Greeks. But there were other tales respecting him, alike numerous and irreconcilable. The hand of destiny marked him as a wanderer, Fado Profugus and his ubiquity is not exceeded even by that of Odysseus. We hear of him at the Enus in Thrace, in Pelene, at Aenea, in the Thermiac Gulf, in Delos, at Orchomenus, and Mantinea in Arcadia, in the islands of Cythera and Zacynthus, in Leucus and Ambrosia, at Buthrodum, in Apirius, on the Salentine Peninsula, and various other places in the southern regions of Italy at Drapana, and Segesta in Sicily, at Carthage, at Cape Polinarus, at Cumi, Misenum, Caeda, and finally in Latium, where he lays the first humble foundation of the mighty Rome and her empire. And the reason why his wanderings were not continued still further was that the oracles and the pronounced will of the gods directed him to settle in Latium. In each of these numerous places his visit was commemorated and certified by local monuments or special legends, particularly by temples and permanent ceremonies in honor of his mother, Aphrodite, whose worship accompanied him everywhere. There were also many temples and many different tombs of Aeneas himself, the vast ascendancy acquired by Rome the ardor with which all the literary Romans espoused the idea of a Trojan origin, and the fact that the Julian family recognized Aeneas as their genteel primary ancestor, all contributed to give the Roman version of this legend the preponderance over every other. The various other places in which monuments of Aeneas were found came thus to be represented as places where he had halted for a time on his way from Troy to Latium. But though the legendary pretensions of these places were thus eclipsed in the eyes of those who constituted the literary public, the local belief was not extinguished. They claimed the hero as their permanent property, and his tomb was to them proof that he had lived and died among them. Antenor, who shares with Aeneas the favorable sympathy of the Greeks, is said by Pindar to have gone from Troy along with Menelaus and Helen into the region of Cyrene in Libya. But according to the more current narrative, he placed himself at the head of a body of Aeneidae, or Venedi, from Paphlagonia, who had come as allies of Troy, and went by sea into the inner part of the Adriatic Gulf, where he conquered the neighboring barbarians and founded the town of Patavium, the modern Padua. The Venedi in this region were said to owe their origin to his immigration. We learn further from Strabo that Episcalus, one of the companions of Antenor, had continued his wanderings even into Iberia, and that he had there established a settlement bearing his name. Thus endeth the Trojan War together with its sequel, The Dispersion of the Heroes, Victors, as well as Vanquished. End of section 11